You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. Jason Wang is the founder and CEO of Free World, a tech nonprofit. He's also an ex-felon. He was incarcerated for a first-degree felony, aggravated robbery at the age of 15. He was given a 12-year sentence at a maximum security prison in Texas. When he was released, he felt lost. Parole required him to get a job. But every time he applied for a job, he was denied employment due to his felony. The jobs that would take him paid less than $10 an hour. Stealing and dealing paid better than that. But he knew the next time he went to prison, he'd end up doing a life sentence. He wanted to find a better way. So he started Free World. Free World gets ex-felons into high-wage jobs to thrive on their own terms. Includes an expansive curriculum, job placement services, and enthusiastic community, and tech to help people do a lot of it from their phone. Today, it's trucking jobs. Tomorrow, it might be something else. If you want to know more about Jason's personal story, I recommend listening to the Sounds Good podcast episode. We won't go as deep on his personal background here. There's some really painful stuff that he has shared. We do talk about Free World, and we touch on his background. We hear about how Free World has served 200 people have gone through the training already and their ambitions to do much more. Almost none of them have gone back to prison. And when I learned that, and after getting to know Jason a little bit, I became a donor to the organization. And I'm excited to announce Starves for Good Giving Circle will be donating to Free World for this cycle. On this episode, we discuss why you should care about ex-convicts getting jobs. What are the challenges to re-entering society after prison? A powerful way to build connection with people and coworkers that lasts. We talk about shame and learning to trust again. We talk about free world services and how they do it. And what is a legitimate first chance? This is tough stuff, but I think you'll get a lot out of it. Please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to dive right in. What's in it for the average person? Why do they care if former prisoners get jobs? Yeah, so if former prisoners get jobs, what that ends up meaning is that we have safer communities. We are saving taxpayers a lot of money on reincarceration costs. And we're also helping a population that normally is excluded from the economy actually participate into the economy by paying taxes. So you've made economic motivated arguments. Are there any others? Well, I would argue that the way that the prison system is set up in America is uh, biased towards minorities. Uh, Minorities are disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system. In America, one in three Black men have a criminal record. And it's hard for me to believe that minorities are just out of nowhere committing all of these different crimes. When you look at a lot of people in the criminal justice system, they've been trapped in generational cycles of poverty and recidivism. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When somebody goes into the prison system, serves their time, pays their debt to society, and then is released into the world, not being able to access housing, education, a job, or even the right to vote, we're essentially setting up a system where people are 
are set up to fail. And so it ends up repeating on itself. I think that's really moving the story you told. I think some people might be thinking, what's the role for personal responsibility in all this? Well, the truth is, is that 95% of people that go to prison will end up on the streets at some point. And yes, there is a huge, there's a, a huge thing here where people do have to be accountable for their actions. But if you grow up the way that I grew up, how are you supposed to avoid some of the terrible things that happen in your life? I'll give you a couple of examples. I have had graduates go through my program that grew up in poverty who saw their uncle get killed in front of them at the age of four, who was told by their family members to sell drugs by the age of eight, who were sexually assaulted by their family members or other people in their community by the age of 10. Now, everybody has a choice to make in this world, but people don't get to choose whether or not they get born into poverty, if they get born into a world where they have two loving parents at home, where they get access to good education. And when you start off in life being set back already, then going to prison is almost an eventuality that is going to happen because of the circumstances that are happening around your neighborhood and in your environment. Oh, those are heartbreaking little vignettes that you that you just shared there. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of people that I've met going through the prison system, and I've met thousands of people who have gone through the prison system because I was once incarcerated myself. And when you dig into their backstories, you start to learn that people almost didn't have a choice but to commit crime. You know, the, for, for many people who go to a prison system, this is a generational problem, which means that these kids have a father who's been incarcerated before, and their father's father has been incarcerated before. And 70% of kids who have a parent who's been incarcerated will end up in the prison system themselves. And so it's a generational cycle of just incarceration over and over and over again. And once you're trapped in the system, it's very difficult to get out. So tell us more about that. What, what makes it hard coming out of prison to stay out of prison? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, please, we got a lot. So, so I'll, I'll just talk about the the pieces that most people don't even don't even think of in terms of challenges just re-entering society. So, at the age of fifteen, I was incarcerated on twelve year sentence, and I was one of the lucky ones. I ended up doing three and a half years, and then I got released. But when you go to prison. One of the things that people mostly don't think about is that you don't you don't hit a, a light switch, you don't use a cell phone, you don't get to choose what food that you get to eat, you don't cross the street, you don't drive a car. And so after years of being incarcerated, reintegrating into society is quite challenging. I found myself being frightened crossing the street because it had been so long since I've seen a car that everything felt like it was moving too fast. I remember one time I was driving a car, you know, for my first week getting out of prison, and I was driving down this old dirt road with the windows down, the music blaring, and I just started uncontrollably crying because for the first time in my life, it felt like freedom. Like I had the ability to choose where I wanted to go. When I was in prison, I used to have my mom send me lyrics to songs and I would sing those songs in my head and become my own personal radio. Th there are things that are just totally stripped away from life when you're incarcerated. And when you're being reintroduced into society, unless you have a great family or a great 
community support systems, you're largely on your own. And it's very difficult just to get back up to speed. Aside from just the general reintegrating back into society, you're required to go to parole. And at parole, you have to pay parole fees. You're required to get a job. But guess what? Nobody will hire you if you have a criminal record. If you want to go to college to get education, depending on the type of crime that you have, you might not get access to a Pell Grant to even go to college. Because of your criminal history, many uh, apartments won't even allow you to live there. And so what happens when you come out into the world with no housing, no transportation, no job, and if you don't fulfill your parole requirements or pay your parole fees, they throw you back into prison? What are you supposed to do? Yeah, this is a part of the system that seems the most crazy and unjust to me is when you have to pay all these fees and you know, such barriers to employment. It seems bizarre. Yeah, most people that are coming out of prison are saddled with debt and have no credit scores whatsoever. You know, when, when you go to prison, it's not like you have somebody who can manage all of your financial accounts because most people that go to prison are coming from backgrounds of poverty. And so all of your debts, like a car note or a credit card, uh, go into collections. If you spent five years in prison, you end up coming out. Your credit score is absolutely jacked up. Uh, banks won't even give you a bank account to even start your life back up again. You might have restitution, child support, student loans, parole fees. Here in California, in prison, if you need to go to medical, you have to pay $5. And while that doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, when you're incarcerated, you can't earn any money. And so when you get released, you can't get a job and you also have to pay all those medical bills that you incurred while you were incarcerated. So you're just coming out with debt and no opportunity to move up. Aren't a lot of people sent back to prison on technical parole violations? Can you, can you explain more about what that is? Yeah, so, so unfortunately with our parole system, it's not set up for rehabilitation or to help the people that are on these caseloads. And I'm empathetic for parole officers because they're under-resourced and understaffed. So one parole officer could have up to 100 people on their caseload. And so oftentimes, it's much easier to just send somebody back to jail or prison if they're causing any trouble because it, it, it takes that person off their caseload. And that's one less person that they, that they have to deal with. Also, parole officers are typically not equipped to be able to help people actually succeed once they get out. It's so archaic. You know, you can go to a parole office and they might have flyers on the wall that say that there are job opportunities for people with criminal histories. But when you call up that company that's on that flyer, it turns out that they've been out of business for the past five years. And parole officers are not on the ground or not getting the resources in to be able to connect people to current job opportunities that are available today. And so they end up just hurting people like cattle through this really archaic system, which oftentimes leads to failure. Yeah, I'm an investor in a company called Uptrust, and they say that a million people every year are incarcerated for avoidable technical violations. That's right. And so they, they have a product that you know helps with communication between parole officers and parolees. But that's just one approach to it. But I was just blown away by the scale of the problem in that you might not even know about when you're supposed to show up or what you're supposed to do and you, and you get thrown back in prison. Well, the parole system also just makes it very difficult to even just hold the job. When 
after I graduated from uh, University of Texas at Dallas, I ended up finding a job as a management consultant. And that was pretty tough to begin with. Um, and the only reason why I was able to get that job is because I had a really great network of supportive people that believed in second chances, but also believed in my ability to grow. And so I got a job in management consulting and I was able to bypass the criminal background check. But as a condition of my parole, I had to go to a parole office every single Friday, once a month. And that meant that I would have to take time off work. And so the parole officer might say, hey, you have to be there at two o'clock. I would arrive there at two o'clock and then wait three hours before I can even see my parole officer. Matter of fact, I was almost sent back to prison for doing my job. In management consulting, they would oftentimes send me out to other states where I would go to a client site and work on different projects. And before I can fly out of the state, I've got to give my parole officer all the information on where I'm going and how long I'm going to be there. So... I would send all the paperwork two, three months in advance, and then come the day of me actually leaving, the parole officer hasn't even gotten to fill out the paperwork on my behalf. And so technically I wasn't able to go, but this is my livelihood. I've already told the parole officer all the information that they need to know, and so I left. And when I got back, they said, if you do it again, we're gonna send you back to prison for doing my job. And that's the type of crap that we have to deal with on parole. Yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense. That's designed to make sure you're still in the legal jurisdiction so that they can arrest you if needed. Is that what that's for? Yeah. So whenever a quote unquote felon goes from state to state, one state needs to tell the other state that, hey, this person's coming over to you just so that way they're aware. And I have no issue with that. What I have issue with is the current system of being able to provide that paperwork. Because how it works today is that you have a parole office that has maybe 50 parole officers and one fax machine with a box underneath it. And so when people submit their paperwork, they have to fax it over. The fax machine then prints out the paperwork, which then goes into this box. And it's up to the parole officer to shift through all the different paperwork to find the pertinent information. We can't even email <laughs> our parole officers our information. And so because it's a cumbersome process, most people just don't do it. The less paperwork that the parole officer has to do, the better in their eyes. But that prevents people that, you know, if they do have a really great job that does require them to travel, it really restricts those opportunities. And so I had to quit my job in management consulting just to make sure that I wouldn't end up back in the prison system. So we've gone deep on the problem, which you personally experienced. I'd love to hear how you came about discovering a solution? Yeah, so one of the primary challenges that I faced after I got released was just finding a job. And a job means so much for so many different people. Uh, for a returning citizen, a job is more than just a paycheck. It, it's dignity. It's a second chance. But because of criminal background checks, most companies will not hire you. So what we ended up deciding was, okay, if the background check is the primary issue to get people into living wage jobs, not just minimum wage jobs, but living wage jobs that actually help them take care of themselves and their families, then what industries are hiring? And as we start to look at the landscape, one, one of the things that we start to realize is that trucking has an incredible shortage of drivers. They need over a million new drivers over the next 10 years just to keep up with current economic demand. And because of the massive truck uh, driver shortage, trucking companies are welcoming of people with criminal records. And so that's where we started. 
And we started testing the process of actually educating, training, and placing people with criminal histories into trucking jobs. And so far, it's been pretty successful. Yeah, it seems like it. I'd love to take you back to that moment when you decided to start a nonprofit. <laughs> what was that like? Yeah, well, I, I didn't originally intend to start a nonprofit. The reason why we started Free World was because I ended up connecting with Matt Mosheri. And Matt Mosheri is a brilliant investor, CEO coach. He was an ex-entrepreneur who sold this company for you know a, a pretty high sum. And he has just an incredible heart for people with criminal histories. And so we started a conversation about working on this problem together. And he already had a foundation that was set up as a 51 c 3 And so we just started working under his foundation to see whether or not this concept could actually work. And after two years of working on this problem, we started to see that we had a repeatable process that we could replicate across the nation. And that's when we decided, you know what? We've got something here. Let's go ahead and apply for our 51 c 3 And now we're officially a nonprofit. I love hearing how you spent time really validating that your solution made sense. I do, for a second, want to say Matt Machari wrote a book that I think is amazing called The Great CEO Within. And I have a review of it on my website, venturepatterns.com. I highly recommend it to startup founders. Have you ever read it? Yes. It's almost required reading when you come to free world. If you want to have a free world, like, like we work off the most sharing method. Matt is a member of our board of directors. Um, and he's also my CEO coach. So every month I meet up with him and he has been instrumental in making sure that we're putting the right things in place in order to be successful long-term. And one of the things that he always tells me, because I'm very impatient, is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so he's helped me think longer term and really helped me build something that, that I think is really, really special. What else have you learned from him? Radical transparency. It's something that most companies don't get into, but at Free World, we love to be radically transparent and get feedback in everything that we do. This is anything from peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, where employees talk to each other and constantly give each other feedback, but also in employee and manager relationships. One of the things that has been incredibly helpful is the shame exercise. And this is an exercise that we do with any new employee that comes into the organization. And the thought process behind this is that, you know, many times we like to talk about our successes, but that really pushes people away from, from us, not bringing people together. And so we share in a group something that we're incredibly ashamed of that we've never told anybody before. And it's intimidating. But one of the things that you learn from that exercise is that we have so much fear that if we tell you something bad about ourselves, that you won't like us anymore. And the truth is the exact opposite. When you share something and become incredibly vulnerable with other people, it draws people in and they want to be around you because vulnerability connects all of us. It makes us human and we've all made mistakes. So it's just been an, a really, really incredible tool for setting the culture first and foremost, uh, but also bringing the team together, even in a virtual environment. This sounds like a really powerful tool. I've learned a lot about shame over the last few years. And I started off thinking I didn't have any. And then <laughs> I realized, oh, no, no, I, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, and I think this concept of sharing Naming what's shaming you 
causes shame to go away. Not only does it bring you closer together, but shame withers in sunlight. That's right. That's right. I worked a lot on shame I had about the failure of one of my startups. I, I worked on the shame that I felt about the regulatory hot water that we got to in another one of my startups. You know, it's it, just talking about these things. Even now, I feel a little twinge, but it's helpful to say it again. It's helpful yeah. to say it again. No, and and a lot of times we can heal by just bringing things to light and saying it publicly and learning that that shame doesn't have to imprison us. Like you don't have to go to prison to be to be incarcerated. So many of us incarcerate ourselves in our minds, in our in, in our hearts, uh, because we can't let things go. We can't forgive and we can't heal. And so uh, I, I apply this methodology in almost everything that I do in many conversations. Sometimes I just come out with the things that I'm ashamed of. Um, and it's been remarkable in terms of the response because people say, oh my gosh, like I've been dealing with that problem as well. Thank you for sharing. Here's something that has happened in my own life. And 10 minutes later, we're all best friends. It, it's it's really, really powerful. And I'm really glad that Matt taught me that there's actually nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. One of the questions I had for you is, how do you trust people given everything that's happened in your life? Yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've been through, I've been through hell and back. You know, when I look back at my childhood and the way that my father uh, treated me, um, going into the prison system and being treated as somebody who isn't human, um, being beaten down most of my life, there, there was a long period of time where I felt like I couldn't trust anybody. And that trusting somebody only invited pain. Because when you grow up in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, if you show any emotion or if you show any weakness, you become a victim. And so my whole methodology when I was growing up or my mindset growing up was to push people away. That really started to change because of my mom. When I was incarcerated, she used to drive 14 hours every single weekend just to visit me in prison for two hours. And she used to say that even though you're physically incarcerated, I'm locked up with you. She always used to say that, don't forget who you are. You're a good person, despite everything that's happening around you. And she helped me feel human again. So it's because of her that I started to open up. And it's because of a lot of advocates and supporters in my life that have decided to look past my past and really see me for the human being that I am today, that I start to open up. And I found that healing in community was possible and that I wouldn't become a victim. All the things that I had feared when I was a child no longer applied to my situation today. 
And so by trusting people and seeing that they're, they're placing their trust back into me felt good. And I just continued that process. And so now I find it easy to trust other people because I've, I've, I've already gone through the pain. Thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely. What else have you had to learn as a founder and CEO? Oh, I, I wrote an article about this and I, I had a startup before as well. And I had invested everything I had into that startup. I mean, it became my identity. And when that startup failed, I ended up homeless in my car. I had spent every last dime I had on the startup. Um, I had to let go of employees. And I was on the edge of committing suicide. And one of the things I learned through that experience is that your identity is not your business. You know, I had become so intertwined with this company that I started that when people thought about that company, they thought about me. Or when they thought about me, they thought about my company. And I thought that the failure of that business meant that I personally was a failure. And so now that I've had a chance to look back, it's actually pretty silly that I invested so much into this business and thought that I was so intertwined with it because I'm not my business and I do have value outside of the success or failure of that company. So I really walked away from it, really realizing that there needs to be a separation between your professional and your personal life. And that regardless of the success or failure of any business, you still have inherent value as a human being. And that failure is not a bad thing. I might go even further and say that not only should your business identity, your personal identity be separate in some sense, sometimes, but maybe you should make your identity smaller. The fewer things that you attach as being core parts of who you are, the freer you are to learn and grow. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, when th there have many been many times in life that I actually look back and say, I felt freer when I was locked in my prison cell than I do now. Because today I'm, I have, you know, a family and responsibilities and I'm tied to like certain material things. And there's a certain sense of freedom of not having anything at all. <laughs> Just being locked in that prison cell and knowing that the only thing you have is like the books on your shelf and, and that's it. And yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that we should just let go of ego and let go of material things because none of it really matters at the end of the day. At the same time, you are helping people get jobs and have economic stability. This is the mission of your organization. And that's really important work too, right? And the the fact that people are getting jobs that provide for stability and for them to reach for other dreams uh, becomes really important probably for their identity as well, I would guess. I mean, this is the paradox. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm a firm believer that, that the things in life that are important are things in life that you choose to be important. And what's important for me is to continue this work and find a pathway towards actually ending mass incarceration. And the only way that I, the, the, the thoughts that, that have come to my mind is that how can we create an organization that can reach incredible scale over the next 10 years? And can we use that scale to essentially start to, to influence policy, 
to influence public advocacy and getting people into high wage jobs outside of prison seems to be that pathway. And what we're seeing is that people who have been incarcerated for 30 years are being released, getting to these jobs. They're not recommitting crimes again. We have a less than 1% recidivism rate. People are earning fifty dollars to $80,000 a year, and they're finally able to support their families again. Um, we have this video of one of our graduates who was incarcerated for 23 years, and he talks about you know, being able to see his family for the first time in 26 years. And it's because he has the ability to actually provide for his family and he has a, a stable lifestyle that he's able to even do that. And so it, it's changing individual lives one at a time, but it's also about changing the narrative. What is the scale right now of the organization and your impact? Yeah, so at the end of three years, we'll have received about a thousand applications and graduated about 200 people from our program, which means that they have gotten their CDLA license and then also gotten a job in the trucking industry. Uh, this upcoming year, we expect to double that. And how big do you think it can get? Well, over the next 10 years, we want to build the capacity infrastructure to graduate 100,000 people on a yearly basis. Uh, about 680,000 uh, people get released from the prison system on an annual basis. And so we want to be in every parole office all across the nation. Trucking is only the beginning. This is a uh, industry where within 45 days, we can get somebody from application into a career. It costs us less than $5,000 and the outcomes are amazing. But in the future, we'll transition to other industries like welding and construction and diesel mechanic training and maybe even coding at some point. Uh, we really want to be the best and most efficient reskiller for people with criminal histories across the nation. And what is the insight that you've had that other people weren't able to figure out that allows you to be successful in retraining and placing people into jobs? Well, I think number one, it's our own personal life experiences. Um, most of our company is staffed by people with criminal histories. And so we, we, we know exactly what people go through once they get released from prison. And what we've done is we've heavily leveraged technology to solve immediate needs immediately. So as an example, somebody coming out of prison may not have any identification whatsoever, no driver's license, birth certificate, or social security card. And you can't even get a job if you don't even have an ID. So what we've done is we found out that with a birth certificate, as an example, we use a service called VitalCheck and another service called Notarize. We pre-fill a form on our, uh, on our students' behalf. We get them in touch with an online notary, which they can uh, meet over their smartphone. And within five minutes, we can ship off the form to get their birth certificate. The process of getting these identification documents usually takes somebody who's gotten out of prison about three months. We can get them all three pieces of identification within two weeks of release, and it's all done over the phone. We also know that many people coming out of prison don't have access to transportation. So we've got an Uber for business account. And so if somebody needs transportation, they click a button, we send them out a text message, and we pay for their trip to and from school. We also pay our students $2,000 to go to school full-time, so that way they can focus all their time on studying rather than doing anything else. So it's a lot of our own personal experience in navigating re-entry that we've applied to this company. And you know, we really focus on technology to help us expand these services all across the nation. But people aren't learning 
all through technology, right? Yeah, so part of our education is done online over Zoom, where we have built out trucking curriculum, and we teach theory one, which is the main things that you have to know about a truck before you can go to a trucking school and start operating a truck. And so an example is, is you know, what's a slack adjuster? What's a kingpin? How do you safely enter a vehicle? These are all things that you can teach over Zoom. But once somebody has passed our quizzes and tests, we then pay for their tuition to go to a local trucking school. And there are thousands of trucking schools all across the nation where a person can get actual behind the wheel experience. And so for a period of four weeks, all they do is get behind the wheel of that truck and drive every single day. And by the end of that four week program, they're prepared to go up to DMV to do a drive test and they get their license. Once they have their license, we have a truckload of companies that are just waiting to hire them. Wonderful. So there's just this real bottleneck with people getting the training because their job's waiting for them. Yeah. I mean, in California, as soon as somebody graduates, we've got like 10 interviews lined up immediately. Um, there, there definitely is no shortage of trucking companies that are looking for drivers. We're also now getting to the point where many of our graduates have started to get some real driving experience under, under them. So once somebody has about two years of experience, they become incredibly valuable to trucking companies. And so now we're talking to very large fleets to do a direct hire relationship where we can get paid a placement fee, but we're also putting people into jobs that pay 80 to $120,000 a year. And these are all local routes where they're home every single day and they have set schedules. And so it's just a better caliber of job for our graduates. And it's, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. This was surprising to me when I learned how much you could actually earn as a truck driver. Yeah, yeah. So, so students uh, immediately graduating our program are earning fifty to eighty thousand dollars per year. Once you've got about two years of experience, you can earn eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. And then once you have three years of experience, we have an entrepreneurship program where we will actually help you start up your own trucking company. And today, we actually have three graduates who have gone through our program, who have started trucking companies, and are now hiring our new students coming out of school. And so it's just a really great feeling to see our guys paying it forward to help the next guy uh, really get a step up in life. Yeah, that's very cool to hear about. And, and the whole model is also financed by people giving you money back, right, once they get a, a job? Yeah, so we, we leverage income share agreements where we invest all the capital up front. And as long as somebody is in a job that pays at least $50,000 per year, then they pay it forward to help the next student go through school. And this aligns our incentives with the student, because if we don't do a good job of getting them paid, then we don't get any funding to help the next student. Now, you were talking about placing people into jobs. Do you ever have employers push back and have questions or doubts about hiring someone with a criminal record? Yeah, surprisingly enough, um, it's the larger fleets that are harder to get people placed in. So we're talking about companies like Swift, JB Hunt, Sierra England. But when you look at the trucking industry, 70% of the industry is mom and pop shops that have anywhere between one truck and 200 trucks. And that's our bread and butter. These are smaller organizations where if the truck is not moving, they're not making money. And so they're much more open about their hiring practices and they give our guys chances left and right. Gotcha. 
It sounds when you talk about the kind of scale you want to achieve to be in every parole office and you rattle off these numbers, thousands of this and thousands of that. I mean, it sounds like a real Silicon Valley founder ethos of growing. <laughs> That's right. So you've clearly learned a lot from the Silicon Valley. What do you think Silicon Valley has to learn from the rest of the country? Ooh, that is a great question. So I am not a Silicon Valley native. And so I don't want to make any assumptions, but Typically, the narrative is that people in Silicon Valley are not close to the people. And what that means is that we live in a, a bit of a bubble, and there are challenges that are happening across the country, and we just simply don't experience it. So I, I, I would encourage people in Silicon Valley to really start to understand the challenges that real people on the ground are going through, uh, whether that's in the Midwest, whether that's low-income populations, whether that's people that are coming out of prison, because there's so much experience, capital, connections, and innovation that's happening here that could really do a whole lot of good around the world. So really just connecting to the people and, and, and understanding what their problems are, because we could really uh, apply the experience here to, to those problems. Learn about real problems in the real world <laughs> yeah. and solve them. <laughs> yeah, rather than behind a, a computer screen. <laughs> Gotcha. One of the other things I want to ask you about is what does the phrase I've heard you use legitimate first chances mean? Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So I don't think that many of our students have ever had a legitimate first chance in life. You know, you get born into a world of poverty, your family are all gang members, your father's incarcerated, your mom's a prostitute. You know, every single time that you walk over to a school bus, somebody's selling drugs, you never had a chance to begin with. And so at Free World, our tagline is providing legitimate first chances because we feel like most of the people who go through our program have been beaten down their entire life. And when you get to Free World, this is where that all goes away. Like, we're going to invest in you. We don't care about your history. We don't care about your past. All we care about is your future. And so if you come into this program and you really put in the effort and hard work to get through the entire process, because it's not easy. But if you put in the effort and go through the process, we will do everything in our power to help you become successful. And for many, this really is a legitimate first chance for them. I think that's a really inspiring place to wrap up. Where can people find out more about you and the organization? Sure. You can check us out at www.joinfreeworld.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. I am so proud to be a donor and to support your work. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Miles. All right. Take care. All right. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you are inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.